Let's make sure history never forgets the name. Sci-fi melody. Got out. I'm glad I'm back. Because the moment that sweet, sweet beer hit my tongue, I was born again! He's taking our money just so he can... build one hell of a spaceship! Maybe he was telling the truth about everything. Oh, mercy. He's the real deal. Sci-Fi Malady. Symptom 253. X-Files. Deep Throat. Insert Scott joke about Tricky Dick Nixon here. Welcome back, sickies, and uh, hello from Germany, as uh, Scott and Thomas may be at home, but I am coming from Germany, which means it's about a good midnight here, and, um, well, it's been an interesting trip. Hello? Sickies, can you hear me? Sickies, it's me. It's Rockstar. I don't have much time on this communication line. I just really wanted you to hear this conspiracy that I have going on. One week ago, Ragemaster said the following. Good job, Hitler, on eventually coming around to the rockets. And now he's in Germany? I think there's something deeper going on here, sickies. Oh no, I'm losing connection. The melody hold, it's come back. Just look into it further. But nonetheless, we are review continuing our review of all things X-Files, or some of the best episodes of X-Files, which may seem curious because um, we did the pilot last week, and now we're doing the second episode ever made. And that's because this seemed to peak a lot of lists of top episodes. And I don't know, Thomas, what would you say? Would you say this belongs in a top five list or whatever? Oof. Um, it's a top one, but it's hard to pick only five. True, true. Uh, now you see what but, I go through every single year in January. <laughs> yeah. Fair but enough. But we did make a top list, so, um, and so I remember this episode because to me, this is the one that really intrigued me the most because this was always showing on TV. This the scene where Mulder sees the um, ship fly over him. That was the one that caught my attention. So, and then of course after I saw it, and it, it, it tops a lot of lists. So it seemed a good one to use here because it also established a lot of things that would later become constant X-Files. Um, fun fact, this was the one that would start the TV theme, the famous song that you heard at the beginning of our episodes. Um, you didn't hear that in the pilot. Here you do. This was the first introduction of that. Um, also fun fact is that this was filmed more than one year after the pilot. So I guess... Um, that sat on deck for a while? I don't know. I can see but. that. I can actually, when you say that, that makes sense. It seems why there is a difference in... There's a difference in how Duchovny and Anderson are playing the character slightly, because if you put a character away for a year, it can be hard to figure them out exactly the same, especially 
when you only really read the role and played the role one time. Right. But here they seem more comfortable with it. Yes. Um, this also sees the first appearance in the series of Jerry Harden playing Deep Throat. Um, he wouldn't really be named until the finale, but, you know, this was the introduction of that character, which, spoilers for those of you that are saying Deep Throat, you mean like the one from Watergate and all the President's Men? Yes. Chris Carter was very much influenced by Waterdeep or Watergate. Waterdeep. Water. <laughs> yeah, now I'm thinking Forgotten Realms. But Watergate. Um, like so many of his generation, Watergate shaped how they viewed the government, how they looked at conspiracies and all sorts of things like that. And this definitely played a role in that. So um for those of you that are thinking that seems a bit too on the nose, well, Chris Carter wasn't being real original. He was just flat out pulling from reality. So, um, the other things we'll notice is that in many times when Scully examining a newspaper, microfiche, or anything like that, the articles are usually written by Chris Carter. <laughs> or C. Carter. Or I'm something glad you like called that. it. I was going to throw that one in. I thought I had a secret real fun fact. Um, you kind of do. You kind of did. So, but it, it kind of is. Yeah. So, um, those are all the real fun facts that are worth mentioning because I want to quickly go through the pilot and then shift to some questions because this is really um, an episode that seems very much in Scott and Thomas's wheelhouse here. So, as the Rage Master, I'm going to kind of step back and become kind of a kind of a moderator, really, because I don't think I could participate well in this discussion. I will have some two cents, but I don't think I'll have anything provocative or interesting to say compared to Scott or Thomas. So, let me quickly do a plot summary, and then we'll get into the questions. Um, a pilot is at home this the show opens up with some SWAT guys going into a home in Idaho and it turns out a pilot has grabbed a gun and is holding people you know threatening to use it they get into the house they find the pilot and he's covered in rashes and he's just completely wigging out he's taken away and he's gone it turns out for four months and his wife has been contacting it turns out he's a test pilot for the air was it the air force Air Force, yes. Air Force. And he's been gone for four months. Despite all his wife's entreaties, she's not getting anything. So Mulder picks up the case and wants to go investigate. Now, prior to him and Scully flying out of D.C., they meet the agent Deep Throat, or rather Mulder does, who tells him, drop it. You have more important things to do. Mulder, this, if anything, this just emboldens him. And he and Scully fly out to Idaho, where they start going around and meeting with any UFO expert, and they meet with locals. There's a local at a diner who took a picture of a ship that they've been testing at the local Air Force base, and they also happen to run into... They go near the Air Force base on the other side of the fence one night, and they see two shapes just kind of moving around in the sky, like if you were playing with a laser pointer, you know? And then they wind up running into two kids, one of them played by Seth Green, by the way. And um, they go in, they sneak into there and lay down and probably light up a joint. 
and enjoy the show. Well, this episode, uh, they were chased out. Mulder and Scully rescue them. And Mulder also and Scully run into a journalist who's looking for things, but in the long run, it turns out the journalist is from base security. Mulder sneaks into the base where the kids go, and he sees the vessel that he's been looking for, that he has a picture of from someone who took a picture at a local diner. And then he's arrested, and they give him this treatment that makes him forget everything he's seen. Because later on, he's dropped off to Scully at the entrance to the, the base, and he says, how did I get here? And this tracks with the pilot who finally was returned, but had spots in his memory missing. Because apparently the Air Force is wiping the, the memory from of that vessel, that ship. Mulder then, they go back, and Scully puts in her field report, that, again, something inconclusive. And Mulder meets with Deep Throat, who basically asks him, well, I'll hold off on that conversation, because that's our questions. Not the most perfect plot summary, I understand, but I really want to dive into the heart of this episode. The, qu the questions that are really going to spark a good discussion here. <clears throat> so you ready, you two? I am ready. Yes. Okay, question one. So there's a scene where... Mulder and Scully are discussing what is this vessel. Mulder's not entirely convinced it's aliens. He thinks it's an alien craft from the Roswell crash that took 50 years for the army to build. Scully, of course, is not too convinced. She asks, did you ever stop to think that what we saw was simply an experimental plane? Because she did see the plane moving around in the distance like the stealth bomber or this aurora project doesn't the government have a right and responsibility to protect its secrets and the government did protect the stealth bomber uh, when you look back at the history of it nobody knew it was in development except those who were building it and those who were flying it um, uh which one the very first unveiling of it in fact the test pilots were called vampires because they were only allowed to come out at night to test fly it you're talking about the f 117, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. When it, this was brand spanking new in the late 80s, early 90s, I don't remember the date exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I was, I was just making sure you weren't talking about the B2 because that one got leaked by a politician. Oh, no, 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 no. We're talking about the very first stealth technology. Um, but, so Scully's bringing up a point that, hey, maybe it's just like those. And, but, and, as I said, she ends with, doesn't the government have a right and a responsibility to protect its secrets? At which point Mulder says, yes, but at what cost? When does the human cost become too high for the building of a better machine? So there's kind of two parts to that question. One, does the government have a right to protect secrets like of that caliber? And two, at what cost? When is the cost too high? So I'm going to kick it back to you, too, because I really don't have a good enough answer to, um, to contribute anything meaningful here. So I'll just moderate this. And knowing Scott, I have a good feeling where this is going to go. So the first question, does the government have a right to protect secrets like this? Absolutely, it does. Beyond yeah. any doubt, it does. Um, I fully agree with um, 
the guy who's <laughs> pretending to be a journalist at the end when he says everything here is equal to the protection that we give it. It is you that has acted inappropriately. <laughs> this is a government that hasn't killed anybody. It hasn't imprisoned anybody. Um, you know, it, it, it rehabilitated the pilot. You may say that's prison. But they got him, you know, he clearly snapped. Uh, Mulder absolutely probably could have legally been shot on site for trespassing. The two kids, they didn't care what those kids did because they knew that they all, all they were going to do was potentially see a UFO. But here is an FBI agent and his partner exactly where they're not supposed to be calling interest to a, a key linchpin of our air defenses, potentially, an experimental plane that other nations cannot even really know is in development without giving away and tipping our hand to what's going on there or telling them where they need to look to find it. This is a problem. And this is a problem not just for one person or two people. It's a problem for all 300 million Americans at this time. And so Mulder asks this question, when does the human, at what, does, what point does the human cost become too much for the government's secrets? Well, what human cost are you talking about, Mulder? Are you talking about the cost of the individual and the individual's liberty where they think they're kings and they need to know, have a right to know, and should know what's going on behind that base? Are you talking about the pilot and the family that got hurt by it and that the pilot's family maybe should know why um, their loved one has holes in their memory and can't remember things? Or are we talking about the 300 million people living in American society who depend on this weapon system to sleep safe at night? It becomes a very utilitarian counting that's going to go on here. But now, this is what real decision makers, real rulers, real governors, real people of power and influence have to do. They have to decide which liberty gets trampled on. Is it the liberty of the individual? Is it a cost to the individual? Or is it a cost to society as a whole? And at what point does one trump the other? How many individuals do you hurt to protect society? How many individuals do you let get hurt to protect the individuals that comprise society? If anyone has acted inappropriate here, it is Fox Mulder, who's running around in an Air Force base, probably exposing one of our super-secret weapons of war, making us potentially more vulnerable in the next world conflict that might happen at that time if it does happen, because he believes that it's really the ship that they reverse-engineered from Roswell back in 1947. Um, this, this, in theory to me, is no different than the, the A-12 ox cart, which became the SR-71 Blackbird, developed parallel, but basically the same thing, the first Mach 3 spycraft. The military covered up the deaths of its own pilots and generals to protect the existence of that program because the only way to get the accurate information we needed over Vietnam, over Korea, over the Soviet Union, the only way we had this information to know what the real situation on the world stage was, was that Russia couldn't know these planes were up there. And so we paid the cost in individual liberties to protect the greater liberty of everyone. Now, do I feel a little scummy saying all of this? Sure. Because it's not the, the ethical, um, it's not something that Star Trek would have taught me, and it's not a statement that Jean-Luc Picard would make. But ultimately, but what about Spock? Spock would say it's a necessary evil, and and it is. It it is something that cannot be let out, and maybe that does mean that some innocent lives have to be taken, and maybe that means some innocent lives have to be ruined, because you can't just have someone who 
who doesn't have the big picture, thinking they have a right. There is such thing as need to know information. And that need to know information being kept, need to know, protects every single last one of us. And there are people in this country who will have black stains on their soul for things that they have done that are horrific and they will never make peace with. But they did them so that the rest of us don't have to and can have these highfalutin Jean-Luc Picard ideals out there. Hmm. Okay, so you were saying that this some people need to be the Cisco, some people need to be the Picard. Yes. I support okay. what's going on at that Air Force base. I support the people who kidnapped Mulder. I support the people who roughed him up, took the information and said, get out of here. You're an FBI agent investigating something that you think goes to Roswell for your own personal crusade, but there's bigger things here than your personal search for tr- truth. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thomas? I think the government absolutely has the right to keep secrets. Now, what secrets they keep and for what reasons is an argument and discussion to have. But just keeping secrets by itself is not wrong, per se. Um, It's somewhat justifiable. I mean, you can't let the enemy know what your passwords are to your nuclear missiles or something like that. You can't. Absolutely. So there are levels of secrecy and levels of acceptable, I don't want to say secrecy, levels of not letting the public know things. Um, so I, I, I think in this case, the government is absolutely within its rights and sh- has the right to chase the people away. I mean, the FBI does not have authority in this situation. It would have to go through, if they want to investigate this, it would have to go through proper channels, which they're definitely not doing. Mm-hmm. So. I think Scully, yeah. Scully makes a good point too to Mulder, and you know this will come more in our second question too. But she says, Mulder, these aren't questions we're supposed to be answering. Our kidnapping suspect is home. We're getting out of here. If there's going to be Mulder needs to remember that if there's going to be any credibility to his own research, he can't just assume that everything automatically is they a UFO, right? Mulder she, has to keep his own objectivity. You can't assume everything is a UFO just because it doesn't have the right explanation. Correct. Not like when he says when he says planes can't fly that way. Scully says, you know, what else could it be? But again, we didn't have something that could go Mach three before we did. You, you show someone a helicopter before we had mm-hmm. the ability to hover in place. And we didn't have things that could do that. We didn't. We had pilots that would look up at the SR seventy one Blackbird and say, "We don't have anything that can fly like that and maneuver like that." Or a pilot. We you couldn't send someone ninety thousand feet in the U two. The U two spy plane is so advanced it's still in use today. Yeah. Think about that. Think about how ahead of its time that was. You're talking about a plane that is still more advanced than spy planes in a lot of other countries. They would love to be able to have a U two that they could fly at ninety thousand feet. Or 70,000 feet. I think it was the, the next one that went to 90. Maybe the U-2 was at 90 anyway, but it doesn't matter. The point, of, the point I'm saying is, just because we think we don't have something that can, that can fly like that, doesn't mean we don't. 
just because a pilot who spent his life or her life flying thinks, we don't have anything that can fly like that, and I'm talking about the Nimitz incident, doesn't mean that it isn't there somewhere, and only a handful of people know that we've had the breakthrough that, hey guys, guess what? We can do this. Based on what we know and what we're aware of as experts, you can get a pilot, say, based as an expert in the field, what I'm aware of, my ability flying planes. There is nothing we have that can maneuver like that currently. But what you can't say is that it's not possible unless you're violating the laws of physics. And you know what? Um, This is going to sound really bad, but I believe that if science looks hard enough, sometimes they find ways around the corners of the laws of physics. Uh, What we know today could make that incapable. But just like... I keep using those examples, the U-2 or, or, the, or the SR-71 or even the stealth bomber. What was supposed to be impossible sometimes, somehow, some way, becomes possible. Well, and that bleeds into a very, the, wonderfully into the next question. So, in the end, Deep Throat and Mulder are having a conversation. And it's a very ominous kind of discussion. Um, first of all, Deep Throat asks him, Mr. Mulder, why are there those, why are those like yourself who believe in the existence of extraterrestrial life on this earth, not dissuaded by all the evidence to the contrary? So before we go into what his response is, why do you think that is? Because that's not just beyond extraterrestrial. That could be, um, ancient alien theory, um, you know, the belief that the pyramids were batteries that fired blue energy into the sky and, you know, every other piece of ridiculousness that in light of the evidence to the contrary, how come there's still belief in that? And I, I have a quick answer I'll throw out there before anybody robs me of it, since this is the only one I can actually participate in well. And it has to be with... Um, what the reporter says, people see what they want to see. It doesn't matter what evidence you produce. Um, that's my two cents in there. I kind of agree with the journalists there, even though he knows to the contrary what's happening. Uh, but, but what do you guys think? Why is it that someone, be it extraterrestrials or ancient alien theory or whatever, why do people believe it even when there's evidence to the contrary? You want to you start, Thomas? I'll flat flat Earth is a great one. example, too. You know? Fine, I'll start. The reason why is they want to believe. Plain and simple. If you want to think that this is real, that aliens exist, you will absolutely find any evidence that will support it, no matter if it's a plausible one or has been disproven a million times. You will go with it. Mm-hmm. So, that simple. I think right. that it goes to the core of the question, and specifically the word choice. It says, Mr. Mulder, why are there people like you who believe what they believe? Contrary to all the other evidence, and that's a bad paraphrase, but it's believe what you believe, contrary to the evidence. And I think this comes down to something that we often get into, fundamental misunderstandings between, I'm going to say, science and religion. You get someone who's a scientist and um, talking to someone about religion, and the religious person eventually will go, well, what then? Is science, is science what you believe? Is science what you believe in? 
And a scientist will look and say, I don't believe in science. Science tells me what I know. And that's the fundamental incongruity that cannot be worked out between science and religion, is that science is a study of what you can know for a fact. Test, quantify, repeat. And religion is a discipline that asks you to believe without definitive proof and without being able to know for certain. Same thing now comes down to things of the nature of ancient aliens or the flat earth or um, Mulder and alien abductions. And what is it cause? And was that a plane or was that a, a UFO stolen from Roswell? You see, the thing is, what is knowable and what we can demonstrate to be factually true is fairly limited. What we can say with a relative amount of large certainty is expansive. But there are a few things that are limited. If I, if I drop the pen I hold in my hand, it's going to hit the floor unless something else stops it from hitting the floor. Because gravity is going to take effect. But it's going to stop there, because we really can't define the particles of gravity or much more about gravity. But we know that it's there. Um, 2 plus 2 equals 4. And despite many methods of new math, on a very simple level, I can show you why 2 plus 2 will equal 4 this time, next time, and every time. Beyond that, though, it's hard to demonstrate conclusively what we know. You know, if it's raining outside, I can tell someone it's raining outside. I don't need them to believe me that it's raining outside. Uh, that's another example. But ultimately, Mulder gives you the answer. All the evidence to the contrary is not entirely dissuasive. So you get a combination of Mulder believes, Mulder thinks he saw aliens abduct his sister. Mulder believes his sister has been taken by aliens. And Mulder would rather believe that than believe his sister is dead, because that means his sister might still be out there somewhere, especially since he got some message that, you know, she'll be back someday. Um, and so whatever evidence that has been presented to him has not reached the level of certainty to be entirely dissuasive. And that's what's going to happen to Mike Barra. That's what Giorgio Suclos is going to give you. That's what the Flat Earth people are going to give you. Um, ultimately, when you ask them, why do you still believe what you believe? Because you can't give them enough evidence to entirely make them say, all right, I'm wrong here. Because it's usually about something that can't be empirically, demonstrably tested, shown, demonstrated, and repeated. Now, I want to add, as I did with our Flat Earther episode, we can't deny the um, uh, community in this, or in the case of Mulder, family. Um, you said it, Scott. Mulder wants to see his sister again. And to accept the fact that it wasn't aliens means either she ran off or she was killed by some other means, you know, uh, what do they call that exposure? She tripped and fell and yep. died in the forest or an animal mauled her or something, you know, he doesn't want to accept that because she's dead in that case. And there's nothing he can do. It's easier to believe in the alien. In the case of the flat earthers, um, it's not merely that you're proven wrong, but it's that you are now that community of special group of people where you're all comrades is dissolved now. Cause what else do you have? 
Um, and you have to prove them wrong in a way that they are willing to accept as wrong because they're not going to believe that unless they're floating in outer space looking at a round earth, they're not going to accept any pictures because they're not there to validate it. Right. Um, but I think that's kind of where I'm at that, you know, they're in that community that's endorsing that and it becomes very insular. Um, you put your own self-identification so, into that. Exactly. You're flat earth so, guy. If the earth isn't flat, what are you? Well, it, it's exactly like that guy who, the, that the documentary was following when they posed to him, what if you could definitively prove the earth was round? He just looked downcast and said it could never happen. But it wasn't, he wasn't saying like that. Clearly, I'm very sure of myself. He was saying it like, no, please, God, no. Because then I go back to being a nobody. Um, or like all the tests those guys did that proved the earth was round, but they just decided to disregard it because, dear God, no, we're wrong. We'll be a laughing stock community dissolves we won't be important anymore um you know you said it yourself in one time scott i think during your quick rants about the kennedy assassination the common explanation isn't as awesome finding out that the air force is just working on a new plane that's not sexy enough finding out that they're doing it from alien crash remains that's awesome so it's just not as exciting to find out that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone and that Jack Ruby just did some weird thing on his own or maybe at the behest of one or two other people. But you know what I mean? It wasn't this interlocking web of 42 different volunteers all in their 50 different factions firing 42 bullets. It wasn't that. And that's not exciting. So... The truth is out um, there, but the truth is often very boring. It's not fulfilling. Be. And you know what? There's the thing. At its most basic level, human life is very boring. You look for things that are outside of the ordinary, that are outside of the pale, and you want to believe that there's something more to, the, to this life than the ordinary uh, rules of reality that govern it. Because if you look into that too long, you get to simulation theory. You know, don't don't think too hard about why every pie exists because it's the formulaic way to generate a circle in a universe when you only have a limited way to give those instructions. Um, you know, if you think too hard about pie, it probably shouldn't exist. But then you come looking for a fun answer for it. Ultimately, life is a very simple, straightforward, basic thing, and more often than not, reality is exactly what it appears to be. And that's boring. Yeah. Right. And to that, to leading on to that question, is Mulder's answer good enough to believe in the existence of UFOs or otherwise? Because all the evidence is to the contrary is not entirely dissuasive. Um, is that a good enough reason to believe in the fantastic? I say yes. And I say yes for a very simple reason why. It, it, it comes down to what I said earlier. Very few things are fully quantifiable, fully testable. And, you know, um, if it's not one of those things, then you're left with what do you believe? And you will believe what you ultimately do because 
All the evidence to the contrary of my belief is not entirely enough to dissuade me of that belief. Mm -hmm. I believe that Elver Hanover is going to win the second race at Northfield tonight. I don't know. But all the other evidence in the program isn't going to change me away from making a win place bet and wheeling him in a superfecta bet in race two. Because mm. all the other evidence is not going to be enough to dissuade me from my belief that he's the best horse in the race. Despite the fact that Southwind Amazon is in there and is one over a million and a half in his career. That doesn't matter. Because I know, I don't know anything. I can't know. I cannot tell you what the result of that race is going to be. I can only tell you what I believe. And if you can't present me evidence that is entirely dissuasive to my held belief, why am I going to change it? Why should I? Okay. Thomas, what, what, what do you think? Is Mulder's answer sufficient? I'm going to say... Uh, that's a question. I'm going to go with... Based on it, let me let me fill it in, and then you can explain the answer. Long answer, no, with a maybe. Short answer, yes, with a but. Not quite. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with yes. All right. I think it's a good answer because what it is is he's placing something out there that is plausible. The evidence for it and against it are muddy. Um, now, he has found evidence that seems to support his case more than anything else. So, okay, it answers the questions that he has. And well, that it does. Yes, it, and it, as the reporter says, he sees what he wants to see, and he has the answers he needs to keep seeing it. Yes. It's very so. simple that he's looking for these answers because it's what he needs to find. Yeah. For him, which your question was, is it good enough for him? Yes, it's good enough for him. It's good enough for him. Good enough for anyone else in general? Going to go with probably not. <laughs> okay. But. Okay. Um. So, you know, we didn't really do this question. I want to get to this real quick. Um, though, at what point, when does the human cost become too high for the building of a better machine? We didn't really go over that too much. I mean, Scott, you did talk about it a little bit. You did say, um, well, depends how much, you know, who do you mean by human cost? So th that's the question of the day here. What, um, what is it? What, when is the cost too high? I mean, what's the better machine? Is it a better iPhone? Or is it a machine that um, resolves world hunger by basically creating... Or is it a machine that... Okay, here you go. Scarcity. Scarcity is a cause of a lot of the evils in the world, whether it's war, fights for resources, um, poverty, etc. Scarcity. So we invent the Star Trek replicator. With a zero, with a zero sum energy source, or uh, I said that wrong, a zero field energy source. Uh, any, anyway, we invent we invent the Star Trek replicator that can be powered from a double A battery for all of eternity and create whatever you need. Mm -hmm. How many lives are are worth being lost, trampled, and destroyed 
for that machine that will wipe out scarcity and poverty and in, in, in for the entirety of the human race can't answer that it's, an, it's what's the sound of one no i can't is it i mean do you i mean but each of us will draw the line somewhere uh you got to kill a thousand people for that machine to come into existence do you do it um as bad as this sounds yes i will because i'm gonna save more than a thousand people because by not killing the thousand people i can rationalize to myself i just let 10 million people this year die um and let's add to it that machine also has a cure for every medical uh ailment that's ever going to face us so we have infinite mm. food, infinite energy infinite water infinite supplies and infinite medicine um maybe it doesn't create cures but it's infinite medicine there'll be no cost of medicine ever we just have to know how to do it uh do i kill a million people probably uh where do i draw the line a hundred million people i mean it's going to take a long time for those returns to come back it might take me a hundred years but in the long run I've created a better world. It's the Thanos equation. How many people, at what point do I stop at 50% of the population before it's now unethical? But then time changes that equation. So, so the real question comes down to is it's not about numbers. It's about some machines, some advances need to be created at any cost. And to truly better the human race, I gave you a really easy example. It becomes far less to tell when it's... um. A water purification system that will end water scarcity on the planet. Now I can't really quantify those numbers so well. So now I'm not sure that I can justify killing anyone to bring that machine into existence. But um, I hate to do this because it's a cop-out, but if it's a machine... You know what? I'm going to give an answer that's not a cop-out here, and it's a damn tough answer, but here it comes. If it's a machine that will save lives in the long run, make humanity better make the quality of life for those who still exist better in the long run than the lives that have to be lost to make that come about can be spent okay all right thomas when is the cost too much yes And, and you don't need to put a number value if, no. if, you, uh, if you can't. I, I, I think the cost is too much when it destroys your morals. Okay. If you, and I, I think this becomes a very personal question, because it comes down to the individual here that is making that decision. Can you live with yourself you live with your decision afterwards is it hmm? in your moral compass correct if your moral compass says that every life is a hundred percent sacred even the criminal who, who's on death row for the worst crime ever that person has the same absolute same value as everyone else then can you you can't kill that person because they, they're equal to everyone else mm -hmm. you can't kill one to save another you just can't um so if your morals dictate that certain things and certain outcomes can be beneficial and is acceptable even with the loss of current life then you can absolutely live with yourself 
and that's why I think it comes down to the individual's morals. Okay. All right. Well, um, we are nearing the end here. So before we rate this thing, I just want to say that the end of the show has deep throat telling Mulder that uh, they've been here a very long time, Mr. Mulder. A very ominous warning of letting you know what's to come. And with that in mind, let's rate this thing. Hold on, hold on. I have one rip. I have one rip. Can I do a quick rip? Okay, a rip? I wasn't going to do that today because of the questions, but go ahead and rip. I want to rip the first scene. I've watched this scene a couple times now, and it just is the weirdest thing ever, and it should have been reshot, redirected, reacted. Scully is sitting at a bar in the middle of the afternoon. Mulder comes in out of nowhere looking like he's about to dive in for a kiss and then realizes Scully doesn't want to and stops himself at the last second as if he's, like, teasing. And then and then she, he says something, I've got something to show you. And she says, something that you can't show me at work? And he says, yes. What does this... This scene looks wildly, horribly, ridiculously inappropriate. Come here, Scully. Right? Or, come here, Scully. I gotta show you something I can't show you at work. Um, he went. He comes in. It's just a creepy scene. Uh, go back and watch this scene after I've said this, and tell me you unsee the version of this scene that I'm telling you. Okay. The the rips I had were pretty small things, like, hey, um, they all of a sudden have Seth Green's motorbike in their trunk. When did they load that up? <laughs> um, just little things like that. But okay. So, with that in mind, how many flying Air Force saucers are we going to rate this? Okay. Go ahead, Thomas. Um, it's a very good episode. Um, this begins to fix some of the problems that Scott mentioned in the first pilot episode. You know, Scully is a lot more tempered here and less Yes, I believe in your crazy crackpat theories. Um, the show coalesces more or less into what it goes on to for quite a while. Uh, it introduces some very key characters. And I think it is done very well. I'm going to give it an... Nine. Okay. Yeah, I think cool. I'm, I'm right uh, with you there, Thomas. I think I'm going to give it a nine. It it poses a lot of questions that you can talk about as we did on a lot of different levels, and it does it without being overly obvious to you that it's doing that. Um, it introduces an amazing supporting character that's going to be on there for the length of the series. Uh, I feel that Anderson and Duchovny have better handles on the character and who the character is supposed to be in the voices. Um, I feel that you're seeing, I always say that there's the pilot and then there's the true first episode. A lot of times the pilot is the first episode, but I think it would always be better off to never see the pilot. You're probably better off never having seen the pilot because the episodes you get after that will be far more representative of what the show is supposed to look like. Um, I think this is a very good episode. I think uh, Scully is behaving in the way that she's supposed to be. She's the debunker. She's supposed to keep Mulder on track. She's set there by the FBI to, to come up with a scientific reason for what Crackpot says is going on. Uh, and she's doing that. And she's doing a great job of walking the line of being a supportive partner, but reining Mulder in and saying, come on, we've got real work to do now. And by the way, if you ever want to prove this theory that you're on, 
this is the way to do it, not the way you're going about it. Yet. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I like the direction this went. It was an excellent episode that had me wanting to watch, watch more episodes. Um, so I think it was good. I think it's very rare to hit with an episode that does a very good job in a lot of things in your first couple of episodes. Uh, and it did that. And, and for all of those things, I, I would give this a, a, a nine. It's an excellent piece of, uh, of sci-fi television. Yeah, I would give it about the same and a nine. It's, it really kind of, um, despite myself hating conspiracy theories, it asks all the right questions that gets you into this show. Um, at this point, you might say, what's this show building towards? But then again, it's the very beginning. To not know exactly what it's building towards is okay. Plus, you do know. You know why Mulder's into the X-Files. You know what he's doing here. He's hunting any of these things down because he's looking for any clue which will lead to his sister's disappearance. You know, what if it turns out that, yeah, it was kind of aliens. It was actually the Air Force. You know, he wants to know that. And so it makes perfect sense why he dives into this. And Scully's there to rein him in, and she's just got a toe in enough into his theories to keep keep her there. But she's also the rational one to kind of almost, if she were the Caragos of the, the of the Greek tragedy, she's there to tell the audience, "Hey, uh, here's the counterpoint to Mulder," and uh, it's almost like a dialogue within the show for us to have. So. Uh, and this really demonstrates that well with, uh, so therefore a nine. Well, I think we all, again, I mean, compared to the last few months, we've had a pretty successful run so far. Let's hope we can keep it going. Uh, we've been enjoying X-Files, um, Truth is Out There August so far. But if you'd like to check out more of what's on Raving Lunatic Media, you could go to our Discord server and check out the shows there. We'll we're going to be having a new Caseatorium season coming out very soon with the, hopefully, a Case of the Chills concerning a haunted elevator. New Zodiac Task Force just dropped today, Down with the Ship, which has some of the best scenes involving Libra. For those of you that are following, if not, you need to get in and watch Zodiac or listen to Zodiac Task Force. You are missing one of the best shows of raving lunatic media and of course you could also contact us with your thoughts on this episode at and our new dating site www come meet me at a bar and a dark table in a corner so i can show you something i can't show you word no raving lunatic media.com raving lunatic media.com raving lunatic media.com page master what's left for them to do stay sick sickies